Good morning, church. My name is Tony Conti. I've been re attending reality for about seven years, and I serve in the uh, food pantry. Today's text is from John 5, verses 39 through 40, and Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Please follow along as I read for us. John chapter 5, verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And from Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, for the Lord, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing spirit and soul, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, as was said, today we begin a new series on the subject of the Bible. Um, you will be needing your actual Bible today, so um, if you use your phone for that, go ahead and uh, put it on airplane mode and do that, and open your Bible. Um, or if you have a physical Bible, if you brought your Bible, um, you get extra credit points. I'll be telling your community group leaders. Um, they'll be giving you your prize uh, this week. <clears throat> and then um, also, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's ones in pews or on the thing. But we will be, you'll be reading them, looking at them to get some bearings of where we're kind of going, what we're doing. So um, we devoted, back in 2016, who is, is anyone here 2016 at a part of our church? Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, in 2016, we gave a whole year to uh, biblical literacy, and uh, that was way too long, to be honest. Um, uh, we're going to do five weeks this time, five weeks on this, and I think we can just squeeze it all in, just five intensive, five weeks intensive, we'll get it all in. Um, but before I pray, um, I want you to know that, uh, as Jess mentioned, we have the bread journals that we will be ordering new, uh, we ordered, they'll be here but the idea with the bread journal is that um, we get to spend time in the scriptures and be shaped by the scriptures kind of every day, every morning, um, if you do that in the morning or maybe before you go to bed. And, the, and the, the Bible reading plan is way different this year in that it's shorter so you can actually meditate on it. It's not these long, long bits of text, which is really fun to do, but it's hard to meditate on like a whole chapter of like Luke, because Luke writes in giant chunks, right? So um, it's a lot easier to like, and you're in Old and New Testament, and it kind of follows the liturgical calendar, so it's really cool. And also your community groups will be going through uh, uh, scripture practice through, throughout the series as well. And the, the teachings and the CG material don't perfectly line up, and we did that on purpose, because we don't want CGs to become like... Uh, things, places that we just talk about the sermon. We want to get into practice and the scriptures. So um, we'll be doing that. But um, one last thing I want to say is this. Your honest questions are welcome here. Your honest doubts are welcome here too. My seminary professor used to say that churches need an atmosphere where questions and doubts are encouraged and to take the questions of the Bible seriously believing that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. And I believe that with all my heart. Now, I know that does take a lot of time and energy. And there are some people here that are like hanging on to their faith by a thread and they don't have the energy to do a deep dive into honest investigation of the entire Christian faith. Well, I also know 
that the whole point of the Bible and the point of what we're all doing here today is to encounter the living God. So I want to pray that for you as we start. Today, I'd like to begin our series by talking about relearning to read the Bible. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask God that um, we'd be given today the gift of your presence through the scriptures. We pray for an encounter, Lord, of the living God in this space, and you do that through your word and through these words, Lord. So take my words and my mind, and I submit all of it to you, God, and would you teach us today to be apprentices and disciples of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. My wife, uh, Ashley, and I are currently teaching our daughter to read the Bible. And uh, to start, we got what kind of every, maybe you got it too if you grew up in the church, one of those like um, kids' first Bibles, Bible, you know, the, the one with the pictures in it, like a bunch of pictures. And uh, I would read it, we would read it to Junie, I would read it to her at night and sometimes in the morning. And her favorite story was the story of, of Samson. She called Samson in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, um, she called him Lion King. Um, because there's a picture of, here's a picture of the Bible that she was reading, picture of Samson like killing a lion with his bare hands. And she loved that. She's like, Lion King. And then she also thought he was a superhero because he's like, you know, breaking rope and then tearing down pillars. And, um, and so she would, um, she would ask me to read the story to her. And every time I would go to grab the Bible, she would be like, Daddy, let me find the page. So she would f- grab the Bible, find the page, and she would find this page. She's like, okay, read this. And then after like the third or maybe the fifth time, I was like, all right, I have to be honest with you, Junie. This guy, Samson, um, this story uh, isn't really about what this book says it's about. (laughs) This story sits in like a larger story of a spiral of Israel, the people of God, down and down and down, where they actually chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And the whole point of this story is to show how vile and even... Even, even the people of God, how vile people get when left to themselves in continued rebellion. And it's also a spiral of violence, which is why there's so much violence in here. And it points, the book actually points out the fact that violence doesn't really work. And also how God continues to deliver his people over and over again, even though they keep repeating the same sort of things. It's called the book of Judges, and it's a very low point in Israel's story. So, love, Samson's not really a hero, Actually, in the story, God is like, has to show this guy a lot, of, a lot of mercy because he's not super great. And she would look at me like, Dad, just read the story. <laughs> and I would, t- I would try to tell her this, and eventually she moved on and like, she didn't like the story anymore, which is kind of fine. Um, all of us were handed a version of Christianity. Whether, when you came to faith inside of the church, that church handed you a version of Christianity. And all of us, with that version of Christianity, came a version of how to read the Bible. I remember a few years ago, Oprah was on uh, Late Night with Stephen Colbert, and they were going back and forth sharing their favorite Bible verses, and Colbert is an outspoken, um, believing Catholic, and a very versed in the scriptures, and he's like, my favorite verse in the Bible is from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, um, I say to you, do not worry. And so they were talking about this, and then Colbert kind of segued and was moving on to uh, the next thing. But Oprah was like, whoa, wait, wait, I want to share my favorite verse too. And Colbert was like, all right, go ahead. She's like, Psalm uh, 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, 
and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then she says, this is what I take that to mean. The Lord has a wide range of meaning. It means compassion and love and forgiveness and kindness. So you delight yourself in those virtues where the character of the Lord is revealed. So delight yourself in love and forgiveness and kindness and you will receive your heart's desires. Then everybody claps. (laughs) Which brings up a really good question. Is this what that verse means? And another question is, are you allowed to do that with the Bible? Can you read a passage and say, what I take that to mean is dot, dot, dot. Again, if you grew up in church or have been in church for some time, all of us were handed some version of the Bible and how to read it, which brings up the ultimate big question, what is the Bible and how do you read it? Is the Bible a book of timeless truth? Like it's the place where you go to find that nugget of truth that you need in, the, in that moment or like a life verse or is it like a place where you go that answers all of life's modern questions? It's like a book of answers. Like can I live with my boyfriend? Turn to Matthew. Can I, how do I be happy in my marriage? Turn to Song of Solomon. Should I be more Republican or Democrat? Uh, can I take ayahuasca and still be a Christian? Like, these are the questions that we're like, can we do that? I don't know. Is it, is it from the earth? I don't know. So is it like, whatever. So we go to the scriptures. Like, is that what the Bible's for? It's like the question and answer. Ask the Bible question and it spits out an answer. Or do you take the Bible literally? Is that how you read the Bible? Now, this is how many of us were taught to read the Bible. If you grew up in church over the last sort of, last couple of generations, this is, this is how we were taught to read the Bible. And there's a very big reason behind this. Um, here's a picture of, uh, in 1925, of this, the Scopes trial. Now, John in, in Dayton, Tennessee, 1925, John Thomas Scopes was a high school teacher and was accused of teaching evolution in his high school class. Now, he doesn't remember doing this, but he went through with the trial anyways, because some people believe this was a staged trial. It was meant to pit fundamentalists against modernists, which those two two words are loaded as well, but whatever, I won't get into that. All around this thing, all around how do we read the Bible and how does the Bible apply to modern life? The modernists said evolution could be consistent with scripture. And the fundamentalists said that the word of God as revealed in the Bible took priority over all human knowledge. And this trial set off a generation of people and another generation, another generation, another generation to where we're here today who read the Bible, who were taught to read the Bible only apologetically, not not as in I'm sorry, but as in like mounting a defense that the Bible is inerrant and it should be read in what it says. Like what it says in black and white is what it means. So out comes the famous bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You've never seen one of these in San Francisco, by the way. But if you've ever been to the South, <laughs> you might have seen this bumper sticker somewhere, right? And the South could also mean SoCal because they're kind of conservative there too. <laughs> God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That means this is in black and white, I remember a very famous apologist coming to my church when I was a young follower of Jesus. I was just, I was not a Christian for that long at all. And this apologist gave a very funny, engaging talk with pictures about how evolution was wrong in all of its forms and that the earth was young and that God made the world in six literal days because it says day one. And what does day one mean? It means one day. 
And day two, what does day two mean? It means the second day. And if you don't believe that, then you can't call yourself a Bible-believing Christian. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's right there in your Bible in black and white. Now, we do need apologetics. This very, very important subject and, and an area of study. But I honestly think that this way of reading the Bible is the fodder of the recent deconstruction movement. I don't think people are deconstructing. I think what has hap- was happening is people are deconstructing this fundamentalist approach to how to read the Bible. I think that's, and they're just throwing everything out and it's really, really sad. But this isn't new. I was a youth pastor in the late 90s and early 2000s. So mo- mo- when most of you might have been in like junior high or high school or something like that. Maybe not, whatever. Um, I forget how old I'm getting. And we knew, as youth pastors, we knew for, for years that when students went off to university or college that their faith was vulnerable to being deconstructed. We just didn't use that language. We said, you know, they lost their faith. They walked away from their, their faith or whatever. But the difference now is that there's, we have YouTube and podcasts. And they, are, they help us get way more accessible and deconstruction way more interesting. But there's another way that people are taught to read the Bible. And that's metaphorically or maybe spiritually. As in, spiritualize everything. Nothing is really true in what it says. Like these things didn't really happen. They're just, they're like tales that teach us a bigger truth. It's more of like we can gain spiritual knowledge for our spiritual journey. We can make it mean what we want it to mean as long as it's enlightening to us. This is more of like Oprah's approach. Now, none of these approaches, timeless truth, literal, metaphorical, taken exclusively are good, nor are they a helpful way of reading the Bible. Taken together, they can be good because there are some timeless truths in the scriptures. There are parts to take literal and there are parts to take metaphorical, which is why the best way to approach reading the Bible is to read it literarily. Not literally, but literarily, which, which means according to its literary style. What style is it written in? How does it want to be read? And why is this important? Because the Bible... I know this is kind of misleading because the Greek word um, book means is Bible. That's where we get the word Bible. It's from the Greek word book. But the Bible is not a book. This is not a book. This is a library. It's a very different way you approach a library than you approach a book. When you approach a library, there's all sorts of different ways that you're supposed to read different sections. This is a library of books. There's all kinds of books in this. There's actually some, a really popular like, way people, uh, I think there's this Kickstarter of like putting the Bible back into book form. And there's like different libraries of books and all beautiful. And it's a really cool way of, of thinking of the Bible because we don't think of it that way. We think of it as a book. And we read it as a book. Well, it says here, and then we read the, the next sort of book of the Bible the same way we read the last book, and that could be dangerous. Now, this is a library of books that means that we have to approach it as a library of books with different genres and ways that we approach reading it. Most of it is narrative. Secondly, though, the reason why we have to read this literarily is because the Bible are not tablets that fell from the sky. Okay, this is what some people really believe this. Like, you might not explicitly say this, but you kind of believe that we got this thing because it fell down from the sky one day. Someone grabbed it and like, this is the word of God. All of this is from heaven, all of it. Every single thing you flip, and that's, it, that's from God right there. That is, God wrote that and not humans. And that's not, that's not true. That is, this did not fall down from the sky. This was written by humans. Humans wrote this book. Humans 
edited this book, or not book, Bible, whatever. There's stuff left out that happened that didn't make it in here. This is what John says at the end of his gospel, that there's many other things Jesus did and performed that did not make it into this, which means there's ways that the writers of scripture wrote to tell the stories and accounts that they wanted to tell in the way they wanted to tell them. But this is also a divine book because every writer in here was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus actually makes this pretty clear in Matthew 22 when he quotes a psalm. He's about to quote Psalm 110 to the religious leaders. And he says this. This is very interesting. He says, he said to the religious leaders, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and he goes on to quote the psalm. Listen to what he says. The psalm was written by David, speaking by the Spirit. According to Jesus, who wrote that psalm? David. But also, the Spirit. Well, which is it? This is how we're told the Bible was written. Through humans, carried, inspired, breathed out by the Spirit. Okay, I'm gonna stop right here, though. I wanna pause. I want, like, the record to scratch. We're going to get into all the technical stuff in this series, We'll talk about how the Bible came to be our collection of books that we have in our hands or on our smartphones. We'll talk about what it means that the Bible is human and divine and the implications of that. We'll, we'll talk about the different genres and how to read the different genres. We'll talk about original copies of the Bible and can we really know that what we have in our hand today are the same scriptures that were circulated in the first century, which is a really important question. We'll talk about the violence and the hard parts and the variance of different accounts in the Bible, how one, var- one account is not the same as another account, in the, especially in the Gospels. We'll even talk about textual uh, uh, criticism, which if you don't know what that is, um, is what you actually have to learn in seminary, and this is where a lot of people dismantle their faith in Scripture. And we'll also talk about why there's that little heading above your Bible in John 8 that says that this story in John 8 isn't really supposed to be in your Bible. Ever read that on accident? You're like, What? This section's not supposed to be in my Bible. Some of you guys are like, wait, I'm gonna turn there right now. It's there, trust me, go back to it later. Now, all of this seems to be the seedbed of why people deconstruct, and we'll get there, but we can't start there. Because if we're going to relearn how to read the Bible, and many of us really do need to relearn how to read this library of scriptures, we need to start from a different place. So turn your Bibles to John chapter five. John five, and go to verse one. John five, one. John 5 starts by a pool, a pool called Bethesda or Bethsaida. Basically, it's Aramaic for, for house of mercy. This, the pool is called house of mercy. And it's where disabled people would lie in wait for mercy, for help. Let me just read it to you. Look at verse 2. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which was surrounded by, by five covered colonnades. There, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which almost sounds like offensive. Like, why do you think I'm here? Like, why am I at a hospital if I don't want to get well? Like, this is it. This is where people get well. Why do you think I'm here? Of course I want to get well. 
Sir, Thimbled replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, there was this belief that when there was stirring in the water, that it was an angel stirring it. And if the first person into the water kind of got a healing. So every time this water stirred, he can't move. He's invalid. He can't walk. And no one's there to pick him up and put him in the water. And someone always gets there first and then leaves. And he's like, I've been here for like a very long time and I can't get in the water. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. Now, after this exchange, and Jesus asks him quite honestly, almost mean honestly, do you want to get well? Jesus heals this man. But here's the problem. The problem is it was on Shabbat. It was on the Sabbath. And you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath according to the Jewish leaders and the people who interpreted the scriptures of that day. You were not allowed to heal like that on the Sabbath. So they confront Jesus. Actually, it says in verse 16 that because he was doing this, the religious leaders began to persecute Jesus and even try, even began to plot to kill Jesus. Jesus then, from verse about 16 on, um, or 19 on, starts to then give an explanation or a defense of like why he's doing this. I'm from the Father. Moses and his scriptures testified about me. He's talking to these religious leaders like, if you knew God, you would know what I'm doing. But you don't. And eventually he gets to verse 39, which culminates in verse 39. Look at verse 39 with me. He says to the religious leaders, you study the scriptures. And these religious leaders memorized the scriptures, talked about the scriptures, lived in the scriptures, knew them, had like interpretations and different interpretations of the scriptures. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Notice that according to Jesus, it's very possible to diligently study the Bible, to be a devoted scholar and student of the scriptures, yet refuse to come to Jesus. Refuse to come to Jesus? Refuse to come to Jesus. And this is easier than you may think. And the reason why it's easy is because human cultures, by and large, are shaped by an informational mode of being and doing. This is Robert Mulholland's language, an informational way of reading and being and doing. He's a, a writer on, about, on spiritual formation or was a writer on spiritual formation. We as a culture tend to seek more and more information. And we know the the person, the company, the people with the most information, the most knowledge has the most power. So we know this. So we want new facts. We want new bodies of knowledge. We want new techniques. We want new methods, new systems, new programs, new hacks, new algorithms. We want that. We want it all. We, and we do all of this to improve the functional control of our world. And this is how we read. This is why we read. This is why we scroll. This is why we watch documentaries. We want to know more. We, we, we have this hunger to know more, to know more than someone else. This is why when someone says, did you read, and fill in the blank, whatever, like, did you read Sapiens by Harari, whatever, did you read, and you, and you say, and you, you know you haven't read it, you feel, immediately you feel like they're better than you. Ever feel this feeling? Like they have more power than you? Like, have you ever read, and you're like, no, 
And you're like, dang it. I lo-. And, and, they, and you feel like they, they know something I don't know. Therefore, they can exercise power. Well, it says in that, blah, blah, blah. And you feel like, well, did you read? And it goes on from there. Like, w- when someone knows something and has more information, they have this kind of power over it. This is why we want to read faster. Have you ever seen that movie? I mean, you probably haven't. But there was a movie in the 80s called Short Circuit. It's about a Johnny Five, and he was a robot, but he was really alive, and he was a fast reader, and that was, in my mind, I, I've always wanted to be a fat, I'm a slow reader, and I've always, he was just like, he would like thumb through a book, like turn the pages like this, and he would read the whole book in like a second. I, I want to read that fast. This is why we really listen to podcasts on 3x speed, if we can handle that. We want information to come in all the time. The more information we have, the more power we have. And so, when we go to read, study, learn, we bring this informational mode of being into what we, what we read and how we read. And the prominent characteristic of this mode of reading, the reason why we do this kind of reading, is because we want to master the text. We want to master the text. We, want to, we seek to grasp it, to get our minds around what we're reading. And why? Because we want to bring what we're reading under our control. We want to know what to do with it. And after we have done this, after we've brought what we've read under our control, we seek to justify our control by something called interpretation. Here's what that means. We know what this text means and we can defend it against any other people who try to control it in their way, other interpretations. Therefore, we can use the information we have to impose our agenda on the world. Are you with me? And the only way to really do this with any efficacy is to make the text an object and we remain the subject. The text is an object and we're the subject. Grammar 101 the person doing the actions, the subject, the person receiving the actions, the object. We make text the object, it's receiving our action of trying to pick it apart and understand it. And so what we do when we read is we put texts, things that we read at a distance. It's out here to be picked at and dissected and analyzed according to our purposes. And as we stand back and keep distance from this text, We read through the filters of our own perceptions, our own desires, our own wants, and our own needs. And thus, we read for the enhancement of our false self. We want our false self, our ego, that seeks to mold the world into our own image to be satiated, satisfied, codified, encouraged. We read for our false self, typically. This is informational reading and we all do it and most of us it's the main mode in which we read the bible we read the bible informationally for many it's the motivation behind all of our questions about the bible if i could just understand it i can interpret it if i can interpret it i can control it and if i control it, i can control my world the world I can tell this person that they're wrong and this person that they're right. And I can interpret the way that I want to. Now, back to these religious leaders and Jesus in John 5. Jesus is saying that there is a way to study the scriptures that make it about us, our false self, our control of the world and the way we want it to be. And thus, we end up missing the point. What is the point? One more scripture. Turn to Hebrews chapter four to the right a bit. Actually, a lot bit. It's towards 
basically the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. And I want you to turn there because I want you to see a couple things. Now, we've already read this first, but I'll read it one more time, but I want you to see a few things. So Hebrews four twelve. it says this, for the word of God is alive and active and is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, the phrase word of God here, as I read that, typically, I would imagine you assume that to mean just the Bible. That the Bible is sharper than, is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's not 100% wrong, but it's not exactly the point. Now, again, open your Bibles to Hebrews and look, just look around. What is this, what is this writer, he or she, we don't know who wrote it, talking about? They're talking about how Jesus, just look, even look at the subheadings, how Jesus is the fulfillment or the truer and greater of what was um, in the um, Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. So Jesus, chapter three, true and greater Moses, he's the Sabbath rest. Um, he's the greater Adam, chapter one, he's um, superior to angels. Like, so he, the, the, the writer is talking about Jesus the whole time. So then it almost feels like a non sequitur. All of a sudden, this is inserted out of nowhere for the word of God is living and active. You're like, why are you talking about the Bible right here? But the writer's not. The writer's talking about Jesus. This phrase, the word of God, this phrase is used of Jesus in Revelation 19, that Jesus is the word of God. And in Revelation 19, it says that he has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And in John 1, John writes that the word was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood in Eugene Peterson's language. The word was made flesh and lived among us. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So this word of God here in Hebrews 4 is better understood as Jesus through the scriptures or encountering Jesus as we encounter scripture. And what is that experience like? What is, what is it really like to come to Jesus through the Bible, to experience Jesus through the scriptures? What is that like? Well, first of all, it says it's, it's alive and active. One of the big questions that people have is why do you read, study, and trust a book that's 2,000 years old plus. Aren't there any updates? Like, it's kind of old. Like, do you have any, any sort of updates to this thing? It's 2,000 years old. I mean, the world has changed since 2,000 years. It's alive. It's, it's, it, the book is alive. Jesus is alive now. One, one a scholar that I read this last week talked about how when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus we become Jesus' Jesus's contemporary. He's alive. This thing is alive. Jesus, through the scriptures, is alive. This text, if you give your life to it, is alive. It pops and subverts and exposes and heals. It is a living text. It's a living document. We live in it today probably differently than they lived in it back then, or lived in, we live in it differently than people live in it in other places even today. Not only that, this is it's a sharp, double-edged sword that it penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. Encountering Jesus through the scriptures is like a sword or a sharp knife 
penetrating joint and marrow. Now, that those words, joint and marrow, joint, the primary and essential meaning in Greek is that a joint is the thing, something that unites things, the bonding dynamic which holds the parts of something in proper relationship. And marrow is that, it's like the heart of something, the essence of something. So the writer is saying that the word of God goes to the very center of who we are, to our very being, to our very essence. It goes to where all our doubts lie, our pain, our loves, our desires, our hopes, our fears. Jesus gets to those things through his word. And in case you missed it, the author makes it very clear, the next sentence. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And you will say, like Kendrick Lamar, don't judge me. (laughs) Don't judge me. I mean, this is kind of like one of the the sayings of our generation, don't, don't judge me. I don't wanna be judged. I don't wanna be judged by this. And this is where the foundational shift is, right here, this phrase, don't judge. We don't want to be judged. We want to sit in control as judge over the scriptures. We don't want it telling us how to live. We want to wrestle our interpretation of it ourselves. We want to master it. It's the object, we're the subject. But that's not what's going on here because it gets even more interesting than that. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Now, this is, um, this is actually, this phrase, um, covered, uncovered, and laid bare is actually pretty graphic in, in the Greek language. This, this Greek thought, this idea of laid bare is taken from the gladiatorial arena and the sacrificial altar. What this word means, uh, like, there, there was... Um, uh, animal sacrifices kind of all over the ancient world. And this laid bare is this idea of um, an animal on an altar with its head pulled back and throat exposed right before the sacrificial knife, knife chops its head off or cuts open its throat. Laid bare, opening up an animal and exposing its neck to destroy it. And gladiatorial arena, it was the point where the vanquished gladiator was laid across the knee of the victor and their throat was exposed right before they were finished. Now this is very, very graphic. And here's the graphic point of what's happening here. This, of course, gets all masked and flowery and it it belongs on a, a mug here. But what it actually is saying is that our posture before the word of God is and should be a position of total, absolute, unconditional vulnerability. What is it like to meet Jesus through the text, through the scriptures? It's this place where it's this penetrating, absolute, unconditional, exposed vulnerability where we're now the object and it's the subject. It's the thing reading us. It's the thing dividing us. It's the thing opening us us up. It's the thing interpreting our life. Christ is doing the action. Jesus is the one who is penetrating our hearts. He's invading our lives. But here's the thing. Our false self will do everything in its power to avoid this kind of vulnerability. We'll do anything. We'll reinterpret We'll find someone who agrees with our version of the Bible. 
We'll put on a podcast that asks a bunch of questions about how the Bible came to be so we can avoid its main message. We'll refer to the church's scandals or abuses. We'll talk about the problems we have with our limited understanding of the Bible. We'll seek some understanding so we can remove all the mystery. And all of these are a defense. We put up walls. We read this thing. We don't want to expose ourselves to this thing. This thing is so messy. And so we put up walls. We're like, who, who really knows what this means anyways? I don't really know. I can't give myself to this. It's old. It says things about women. It says things about, about uh, uh, people who are, who are gay. It says things about violence. It says things about like genocide. I, I, can't, I can't give myself to this. So we put these walls up because we're, we're afraid of encountering the living God. I mean, that's ultimately what we're afraid of. We're afraid of like giving up complete control. When I was in high school, um, when I had peers ask me to come to church with them or to Bible study or something, I, I didn't grow up a Christian. And so when high school, when people asked me, hey, Dave, you wanna come to Bible study or church? I would, I would have an answer. And my answer was both a joke and not a joke. I would say, it's against my religion to go to church. That's what I was saying. It's against my religion to go to church. It's like, I had a religion. I had a system of beliefs of how the world worked according to me and how I spent my Sunday mornings and going to church was against those beliefs. So I don't go to church. But really, as I think back, it was a defense. I probably knew in some way that going, I might encounter the real God and I would have to lose control in some way. I knew that. I mean, I know that even today. One of the books I was reading in preparation for this for the series is called Encountering Jesus, Encountering Scripture by David Crump. It's an academic book. If you, are, um, if you are in the midst of honest, honest uh, deconstruction, meaning you're really asking the questions, um, and you have more of an academic mind, read this book. It is very, very good. In the, in the um, introduction of this book, um, another one of my favorite writers, uh, James K. A. Smith, writes the, the foreword to it. And, um, and he says this. He, he summarizes David Crump's work, and he says, to submit oneself to the encounter with Jesus is not to arrive at some ironclad certainty that solves all of your problems. You don't have to set aside your questions. You only have to stop letting those questions be a defense, an excuse to not take a leap. Because sometimes we want answers to those questions precisely to avoid encountering the Jesus who would rock our world. These words are so true. When I first read these words, I was like, I do this even today. I will try and want to wrestle through an understanding of something to keep myself from really, really encountering the Jesus who would rock my world. A lot of us put up defenses so we don't have to encounter the living God. So we're like, but I know what the scriptures say. I know what it says here. I know what it says there. And we fill ourselves with knowledge. We fill ourselves with our own defense. So where does this leave us? One of the characteristics of the false self is the ability to manipulate scripture, often unconsciously, to avoid a transforming encounter with God. We typically want a relationship with God on our own terms. And many of us are not looking for a transforming encounter with God altogether. We're not really looking for that. 
We're more often seeking some like tidbits of information that will enhance our self-protective understanding of the Christian faith without really challenging us. We're like, just give me something I can do, I could do with today that leads me into like knowing that this is all gonna be okay. And the Christian life is still really good and it's really awesome and I can just keep doing my thing. Which brings us back to John 5 and Jesus' questions. Jesus asked the, the, the lame man at the, at the pool, do you want to be made well? And Jesus asked the, the religious leaders, do you really want to receive life? Both of the answers to those questions are only found in an encounter with Jesus. And so as we begin this journey, I'm gonna ask you to begin it with openness. A posture of like open hands that I'm open. I want an encounter with the living God. I want to encounter Jesus as I read the scripture. And I want him to rock my world, flip it upside down, and that's gonna be okay with me. I will be the object and it will be the subject. It will work on me. It will lay me open, exposed. It will get to the very desires and passions and loves and hates and wants and needs of my heart. And I'll let it do that through Jesus, through a living encounter with Jesus. And that's my hope. That's the posture that I want us to go into as we study the scriptures together as we study the subject of the scriptures together. Because if you don't have this, everything else is a power move. Everything else is a power move to go like, we're right, you're wrong. We're in, you're out. All that. And that is not how a community is supposed to approach the scriptures. It's in humility, openness to the living Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, I pray, would you open your hands to God? I I pray for this congregation that as we begin to discuss our relationship with the scriptures, our relationship with the Bible, as we talk about it and even do our own sort of study of it, we wanna start the posture of openness to you, God. We want to encounter you in the text. We want to meet the risen, living Jesus, the word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword that's so able to get to the deepest parts of who we are, to remove things that should not be there, to heal things that we're so afraid of being healed from. Would you probe and get there, God? We open ourselves up to you We want to see you, Lord. We want to encounter you.